Section 13 of Mostly Boys Short Stories by Francis J. Fenash J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Very Unpopular Boy Chapter 1 In which John Quinlivan gets into trouble with his professor. Collect the themes, announced the professor of Latin class as he took his seat after the opening prayers. He was facing some forty-odd boys, varying in age from ten to fifteen years. They were a bright, cheerful, and in general neatly dressed body of lads, and, taking them all in all, wore that indescribable air of youthful good nature and ordered sprightliness, which to the practiced eye indicates the best understanding between master and pupil. The collecting of themes involved almost necessarily some disorder. Many set to work on strapping their books and fluttering over the leaves in quest of the day's theme. Others, fewer in number, instituted a search in their various pockets. Others, again, of the more methodical, at once produced their tasks, and proceeded to smooth them out, eliciting the peculiar crinkling noise which distinguishes the unfolding of fool's cap. All this confusion was accentuated by the movements of four bright, active little lads, each representing one of the four rows of ducks, who bustled about hurriedly snatching the papers from those who had had them at hand, and urging on with loud whispered importunity the laggards. At length the papers were all gathered in, and placed upon the professor's desk. To a disinterested spectator it would have been an agreeable study to watch the master's face as he took up theme after theme, and glanced at each much as an art lover might survey a painting. I do not say it was an agreeable study to the boys directly concerned. To some of them, indeed, it was. To all of them it was at least interesting. Evidently interesting, too, for every eye was fixed on Mr. Frank with an earnestness plainly evincing that the owner was striving to read, if not, the day's disaster, at least the verdict as expressed on the teacher's tell-tale countenance. It would hardly be an exaggeration to say that during the inspection of the first fourteen or fifteen themes, Mr. Frank's face was wreathed in smiles, while words, as it were, of honey, dropped from his lips. The subject of these good words endeavoured to look unconcerned, but he was an astute boy who could listen to Mr. Frank's honest and measured meat of praise without flushing with gratification. But others yet remained to be noticed. The eyes of some were bright and steady with hope, those of a few were flickering like a neglected and spent taper. One boy, seated somewhat back from the middle of the room, his half-averted face resting on his hand, was looking drearily at his boots. As Mr. Frank took up the sixteenth theme, his face settled. "'Look at this, boys,' he held up at full length an exercise smeared and blotted. The class as one man caught its breath. Somebody was in for it. There was a pause, an awful pause. "'This is too bad,' he resumed indignantly. "'Quinlivan!' The boy who had been eyeing his sorry boots raised his head. "'Come here, sir.' Quinn Livin arose and advanced in an awkward, shambling way to Mr. Frank's desk. He was poorly and untidily dressed. His long legs, ungainly in themselves, were made yet more ungainly by his short, ill-fitting trousers, high-waters, the boys dubbed them, which were sadly frayed at the extremities. A melancholy, faded, blue necktie, dotted with ink marks, but half-concealed a shabby, chucked shirt. His jacket of a dead color was patched here and there undue prominence being given to the patches at each elbow. Nor did his face upset his dilapidated wardrobe and his lank, angular build. It was the face of the hang-dog order. 
His slightly freckled cheeks were somewhat hollow, certainly no wise chubby. His mouth was large, his chin retreating, and his eyes, dull and restless, had a stealthy trick of glancing askance, which certainly told against him. He rarely looked one straight in the face. When he did, his glance bore an air of effrontery. His expression it would be difficult to analyze. It was not sad, nor was it cheerful, nor could it be styled placid. Some would say that his look was one of half-smirking complacency. Others would pronounce it dogged. Mr. Frank had set him down as a character three parts obstinacy and one part bitterness. Well, Quinlivan, here's another unfinished exercise, and what you have done is so poor that it is not worth the wretched paper it's written on. I can't read it, can you? Quinlivan threw a stealthy look at the teacher, then lowered his eyes and smiled. His conduct in the eyes of the class and master was anything but propitiatory. With an effort, Mr. Frank mastered his temper, which was fast rising. "'Haven't I told you, John Quinlivan, and every boy in this class, again and again, since the beginning of the school year, that whenever you fail to finish your theme, you should give me your excuse in private before handing it in?' John Quinlivan smiled weakly. "'Will you please answer me?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Very good. Have you any excuse?' "'No, sir.' Mr. Frank was mortified. It was but one month since the opening of school. In this short time he had labored with all the earnestness of an enthusiast at bringing his class into working order, and he had been quite successful. In addition to infusing a spirit of study and piety into his pupils, he had taught them to adopt habits of tidiness and order. He was a young teacher, it was his third year at the work, but in his dealings with boys he was a model tactician. Yet in his otherwise smooth path there stood one stumbling block. Day after day brought no change upon Quinlivan. Privately and in public, time and again, had Mr. Frank spoken to him. He had employed kindness, persuasion, severity, all to no effect. The boy seemed to be grooved in obstinacy. And so Mr. Frank had gradually come to the conclusion that the shabby, shambling student was a difficult subject indeed. "'Take this exercise to the prefect of studies,' said Mr. Frank, sternly. I have spoken to you enough on this matter. Quinlivan, with his weak smile, left the room. He returned presently, handed his teacher a note, and took his seat, his facial expression unchanged. The note read, Have spoken to John Q. Hope he will do better, but must confess can get nothing definite from him. If you do not improve, send him again. Chapter 2 In which John Quinlivan gets into trouble with his classmates. John Quinlivan rarely indulged with his fellows in play. During the recesses he was generally to be found seated in a retired corner of the playground, whittling a stick or indulging in a broken conversation with some chance companion. During the recess immediately following his introduction to the reader, he was at his usual place alone. But he was not fated to enjoy his solitude long. He noticed that several of his classmates were bunched together, holding an informal consultation, and though they were standing beyond earshot, he divined from their gestures and stray glances that he was the subject of their remarks. "'He's smart enough,' Ed Ronald was saying. "'Sometimes I've seen him get up a lesson while Mr. Frank was asking the fellows in front of him.' "'Of course he's as smart as any of us,' added little Joe Hornung, a very small boy with a highly intellectual face." 
why one morning when he got here in time for the half-hour study before mass he wrote out a very nice latin theme and mr frank praised him for it too it had only one mistake mine had none his was second best ah i guess he's lazy put in john mullen with an expression of disdain upon his thin but animated face he looks like a hard case said frank trainer critically and he acts like one too he's downright impertinent to mr frank if i were in mr frank's place i-i'd kick him he's the only boy in our class that doesn't act nicely towards the teacher said jimmy keeler who had just succeeded in pinning a tail to charlie gating's coat and was trying to appear unconscious of the comic effect i think boys we ought to bring him to time at least we might give him some kind of a hint suggested ed ronald when a boy gets a nice teacher he ought to appreciate him suppose you speak to him ed said frank trainer you're the best talker and besides you're the biggest put in little joe the suggestion seemed to meet with the approbation of the entire caucus after some demur ed finally accepted the commission and walked over to quinlivan see here john he said kindly why don't you try to get on with our teacher he doesn't like me john made answer slowly and after due reflection i don't know about that but why should he like you quinlivan picked up a stick and began whittling i don't know i haven't done anything against him the boys don't like me either that's your own fault it's your well your standoffishness that sets them against you you never play with them and don't seem to trust them and besides you are mean to mr frank quinlivan opened his mouth as if to speak but seemed in the very act to change his mind he brought his lips together again looked at his stick and fell into what is called a brown study ed's eyes in the meantime beaming with friendly earnestness were upon him what were you going to say john again john hesitated but finally in a low subdued tone he said they don't like me because i'm poor now that's too much cried ed hotly you're a goose i'm as poor as a church mouse myself and have all the trouble in the world to dress neatly and the boys know i've hardly ever a cent to my name and yet they're all nice to me just as nice if i were a millionaire ed was really angry he had no idea what it was to harbor an unworthy suspicion noble himself he judged the ordinary actions of his playmates from his own high standard but after all he was an inexperienced boy and could make little allowance for those who viewed matters with a less lofty standpoint in his estimation quinlivan's remark was mean and shabby in the extreme you'd better try to do what the teacher says he added harshly as he brushed away quinlivan smiled but said nothing chapter three in which john quinlivan wins a little sympathy from a little friend two weeks passed on and for several days john quinlivan had not appeared at school but just as the boys were beginning to miss him from his accustomed place he again entered the classroom one morning everything about him from his faded blue necktie patched jacket and sorry boots to his freckled face jaunty air and weak smile unchanged it came out during the day that his father had died in spite of their growing dislike for him the boys showed in various pretty quiet ways their sympathy but he ignored all covert overtures 
little joe however the child of the class he was an infant terrible and asking the professor naughty question was not to be balked he approached quinlivan at recess and held out a tiny hand what do you want asked quinlivan as he awkwardly caught the tips of joe's fingers i'm sorry for you john said joe frankly you needn't bother i'm all right and john released his sympathizer's hand don't you feel very bad asked joe looking into quinlivan's face with some perplexity i don't know my papa is dead and my mamma too said joe gently they died when i was a baby quinlivan raised his head and gazed at joe's pitying face earnestly as he gazed the tears started in his eyes he rose hastily caught joe's hand pressed it and hurried away he's not so bad after all thought little joe but as the weeks went on quinlivan's ways held their former tenor long continued arrears in his tasks brought him to lower depths of disgrace and when joe would remark to his classmates i'm sure he's not all bad he stood alone in his opinion chapter four in which mr frank pays john quinlivan a visit and learns a few things not included in the usual curriculum of studies early in the winter quinlivan was again missed from class after a week's absence mr frank called ronald ed do you know the city pretty well i think i do answered ed modestly then i wish you would do me a favor look up quinlivan's place and let me know it's out towards the river in st prosper's parish but the exact address th through some oversight is not down on our register i'll find it sir and pursued ed with a smile if it takes me much time you won't mind my missing tomorrow's theme will you good evening ed laughed the teacher next morning ed returned with quinlivan's address and stated that the boy's mother was in a dying condition mr frank started oh the poor boy he ejaculated what a life he has been leading this year god has deprived him of his father and is now taking his mother and all this time i have scarcely given him a kind word that evening when class had finished mr frank after half an hour's walk made his way through a foul alley to the address ed had given him he found himself before a large ugly tenement house in the gutter beside it some wretched little children were at play one of them a little girl in tatters approached him and gazed upon him with undisguised interest well little girl could you tell me where mrs quinlivan lives in this house she is dying sir indeed could you show me her room yes sir the girl preceded him pattering up a flight of stairs and along a porch which served the common convenience of all the lodgers on the second floor the doors of their respective rooms some twenty in number opening out upon it walking nearly the full length of this porch the little girl stopped and pointing to one of the doors said that's it sir and tripped away mr frank knocked no answer from within he knocked again and strained his ears to catch the least sound he could catch no intimation to enter but he heard what he fancied to be the sobbing and wailing of one in unrestrained grief he again knocked and receiving no answer boldly pushed the door open the room bare of all furniture save a table two chairs a picture of the mother of sorrows a bed and a cooking stove with the most necessary utensils presented a touching scene 
Kneeling beside the bed, John Quinlivan was weeping without restraint, his cheeks resting tenderly beside the hollow, hectic, flushed cheek of his dying mother. John, said Mr. Frank gently. John sprang to his feet, dashed the teardrops from his eyes, and stood looking. Was it in wonder, fright, pleasure, or a combination of these emotions? At the unexpected visitor. Is it your teacher, John? came a feeble voice from the bed. Yes, mother. John's grief, seemingly at least, was now entirely subdued. He wore, it might be said, the ghost of his habitual expression. Thank God, the mother exclaimed. Mr. Frank, next to the priest of God, whom I have seen, I wish to see you. I wanted John to ask you to call on me, but he feared to ask you, and I didn't insist. John is so bashful. Mr. Frank started. John bashful? That was a new factor to be taken into consideration in summing up John's character. My poor friend, he said, approaching the bedside and taking the mother's outstretched hand. God knows I would have come before had I known you were so sick. How long have you been in bed? Almost entirely the last two months and a half. Indeed, since the second week of John's going to school. And who has been caring for you? My darling John. Oh, Mr. Frank, God has blessed me and my child. He has been so good to me. Night after night has he been by my side. Didn't he ever tell you, when he used to come late to class, how he was up with me till late in the night? He has never even told me you were sick. Poor boy, you must excuse him for his awkward reserve, Mr. Frank. Till last summer he was under his father's care almost entirely. He was thrown among bad characters and treated harshly by all, even by his father, whom may God forgive. His father and I were separated through no fault of mine for five years since John was eight. No wonder, then, that my John, after such years of misery, should be suspicious and reserved. But if you knew him as I do, Mr. Frank, you would love him. Mr. Frank was listening to a revelation. Tears sprang to his eyes, and he begged God to forgive him for the wrong he had done. Unwittingly, he hoped, to a noble boy. John, he said in a husky voice, come here. The boy obeyed. John, in the presence of your mother, whom you love, in her name, for her sake, will you forgive me? Oh, I have wronged you so bitterly. John caught the teacher's hand, and as he grasped it, burst into a flood of weeping. It was my fault, he cried. It was, it was. But I couldn't help it, sir. I couldn't talk to you nor any one. I was afraid. The teacher kept the boy's hand and pressed it warmly. How his views had changed in a few seconds. John, an obstinate boy, he was one of God's noble souls. Brought up by a wretched, besotted father, his sensitive spirit had been chilled and frozen under contempt, neglect, and all manner of ill-usage, till he feared acquaintance and stranger alike, till the confiding simplicity of the child had been hardened and shaped into an unlovely and suspicious reserve. John negligent in his studies. He had been mastering a child's noblest study, a mother's needs. John untidy. Oh, there was the neat bed, the ordered room, beautiful in its poverty, and the gentle-faced dying mother to give that accusation the lie. For a long time did Mr. Frank hold converse with the mother. 
For years had she labored and saved to lay by some money for her child. At the price of her life, poor, fond mother, she had amassed a few hundred dollars, and with a part of this money had she induced the drunkard father to forgo his claim upon the boy. But, she continued with a faint sigh of resignation, I have been obliged to spend most of it on myself. Here, she added, producing a warm pocketbook, are ninety-three dollars left. Will you, Mr. Frank, take them in charge for my boy? John, said Mr. Frank, can you trust me after all that has passed? I do trust you, sir, indeed I do, sobbed the boy. Then I shall take this money, and more. I have wronged you sadly, John. With God's help I shall repair that wrong. Mrs. Quinlivan, I solemnly promise you that as far as in me lies, I shall see to your boys getting a college education. I have no money myself, but I have a friend whose purse has long been at my disposal for any worthy cause. I never knew what a blessing his long-offered help might prove. Thank God I can carry out the plan which God in his providence is taking from your charge. The mother's face became thrice beautiful in its tranquil happiness. Before night had fairly settled, a nurse appeared in Mrs. Quinlivan's chamber, and later there came to the house an express wagon with all manner of pleasant things to soften the last hours of the invalid. Mr. Frank had seen his friend at once, and the friend had not been slow to make good his promises. For the first time in several months, John Quinlivan slumbered the night through without interruption. Chapter 5 in which John Quinlivan makes his bow under happier auspices. Mr. Frank on the following morning made a very impressive address to his class. He spoke on rash judgment. After denouncing those who were offenders in this species of fault, he capped the climax by announcing himself as an offender. Then, in a clear narrative, he went over the school career of John Quinlivan, their absent schoolmate, and explained its new meaning in the light of the deathbed scene. Boys, he concluded, I tried to be just, but I must have been hasty. I have learned a lesson I shall never forget, and from this out I shall be a better teacher. For the best teacher is he who interprets aright the conduct of his pupils, and takes each according to his character. How the boys did applaud that slim, neatly dressed, quiet boy, John Quinlivan, when not many weeks later he received the class prize for excellence in the Latin theme. A year has passed. He is still stiff and reserved, but growing less so day by day. All the boys are particularly kind to him, and whenever he seems harsh or unsociable, they remember the long, thorny path of wretchedness which John once trod in silent bravery, and they return his seeming coldness with winning and unaffected love. End of section 13